Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. And we're here every week at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. That's education, by the way, that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all teachers, all children, all cleaners, all employees, all principals. It's open. It's not a discriminatory organisation at all. And as well as that, it should be public in ownership and control. It's not always because a lot of our schools have been built with private public partnerships. And it is the only one that is publicly accountable because it is publicly funded. Private schools are very rarely publicly accountable and they are not open to all children. They are not in any sense public. And uh, we'll start off with our press release 950. Private schools under threat. Would you believe it? But which ones? Oliver is going to tell us more about it, as is Kim and Sol. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Press release 950, private schools under threat. Two private schools, the Colmont International School in Kilmore, Victoria, and the Yeshiva College in Bondi, Sydney, have been placed under scrutiny and threatened with deregistration in the past week. Yet in spite of a mountain of evidence of malpractice, attempts are still being made to keep the schools open. Victoria's schools regulator is pressing ahead with plans to cancel the failed Colmont schools registration as the new administrators investigate whether the school's former owners were trading while insolvent. The administrators, call Cordis, told creditors who are owed millions that it has asked the Victorian Registration and Qualifications Authority to hold off cancelling Colmont's registration as a claimed mystery party considers whether to present a proposal to re-establish the school in 2023. And in Sydney, a ruling by the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal in this last week backed a steering report that uncovered a litany of compliance and safety breaches at Yeshiva College, including the school's failure to provide basic education to primary and secondary students. Inconsistent enrollment records and that the head was not a fit and proper person to be operating a school. But the billionaire owner of the school's building is trying to keep it open. Dogs know that the predicament facing these schools exposes the uncertainties posed by privatization of schooling in this country and the necessity for a strong universal public school system, which can guarantee a high quality education for every child. Dogs also know that one of these schools is a secular school, while the other is a Jewish school. <clears throat> they stand alone and do not appear to be protected by a broader system. Dogs also know that although media have spent the last two decades exposing the systemic child abuse in at least one religious system, none of the schools run by the offending religious orders or religious groups have been deregistered. Luke Beck, a professor in constitutional law at Monash University, believes that Section 116, according to narrow interpretation of the High Court in the 1981 Dogs case, at least prohibits preferential treatment of particular religious schools. He might take note of this anomaly. The following are full reports of the problems confronting the Colmont and Yeshiva schools in the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. And now Kim will tell us a bit about the first Thanks, Oliver. Uh, this article is titled Investigation into Whether Colmont School Was Trading While Insolvent. And it's written by Nicole Presell and Adam Carey. In a letter to creditors, the administrators identified a number of agreements and transactions that required more investigation to see if there were claims under the Act to recover payments if it was liquidated. The email 
estimated the school owed creditors, including parents, teachers, and contractors, more than $6.3 million. This included more than $3.0 million to staff, with parents owed more than $2.2 million in bond and tuition fees, and $315,723 owed to trade suppliers. If Colmont is placed into liquidation and there are insufficient funds to pay them, employees could make an application under the Fair Entitlements Guarantee Scheme, but there was also a chance that they would not get a full return, the administrators said. The administrators said that they had not yet received any proposals to take over the school, but were liaising, we were liaising with an interested party who was unrelated to existing stakeholders. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Kim. So the other school that we have to tell you about is a Bondi school that has been accused of misusing funds and will stay open until the end of September. A Bondi school has been accused of siphoning government funding to pay unaccredited teachers through an external company and putting student safety at risk will stay open until the 30th of September. A ruling by the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal this week backed a searing report that uncovered a litany of compliance and safety breaches at Yeshiva College, including the school's failure to provide basic education to primary and secondary students. Inconsistent enrollment records and that the head was not a fit and proper person to be operating a school. Billionaire property developer Harry Trigoboff, who bought Yeshiva College's two properties in Bondi for $6 million in 2012 when the school was in financial crisis, wants the problems to be resolved so the school can remain open. It is an unfortunate situation. However, as the owner of the land and the landlord to the school, I have no involvement in the decision-making or day-to-day -day requirements for my tenants, he said, but I will be very happy if the problem is sorted out. I acknowledge the decision made by the tribunal recommending the closure of Yeshiva College. As a philanthropist, I've made donations to many charitable causes, one of which is Yeshiva College, Trigoboff said. The eastern suburbs ultra-Orthodox Jewish College is the second school that New South Wales Education Authority has recommended have its registration cancelled. The Alternative Eagle Arts and Vocational College, which had campuses in Broken Hill and on the Central Coast, closed in 2018. The New South Wales Education Standards Authority said Yeshiva College was registered until the end of September and the New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, will consider the recommendation during this time. While the school remains registered, students can continue attending. Should the school's registration be cancelled, Chief Executive Rabbi Dovid Slavin will be prohibited from being a responsible person for a non-government school for a period of five years, the spokesperson said. If the school's registration is cancelled, NESA will ask for assistance from public and independent schools to take it in the students, to take in the students, sorry. The school has about 60 children enrolled from kindergarten to year 10, most in primary years. The school's 2021 annual report shows it received $1.14 million in Commonwealth and state funding that year. It received 915,000 in funding the previous year.
According to the My School website, parents at the school pay about $1,500 a year in fees and other contributions. The state and federal governments provide about $18,000 in funding for each student. The ruling said figures provided by the school in its annual reports and financial statements indicate that some of the funding is used to pay external organization IJL, Institute for Jewish Leadership and Education Association, for non-NESA accredited Jewish studies and or alternatively out of school care. It also found incomplete enrollment records and non-compliance with basic governance. The school has had at least three principals since 2018, including Duncan Kendall, who was a former assistant head of the preparatory campus at one of Sydney's wealthiest schools, the Scots College. In the tribunal ruling, senior member Juliette Lucy wrote she was unsatisfied that the school was compliant with the requirements concerning child protection. NESA's inspection found concerns about teaching staff having enough experience and qualifications, including working with children check clearances. Nine members of the teaching staff at the school are accredited teachers, but other religious teachers are not accredited, the report said. My lack of satisfaction that the school is complying with the registration requirements means that I cannot be confident that the students' safety and welfare are not thereby being placed at risk, Lucy wrote. Well, isn't that interesting? They're quite happy to take registration from a small Jewish school and a small, inter or it's not so small, international school. But we never, ever, ever hear of any of the uh, big religious organisations having a school uh, defunded or deregistered, do we? And perhaps in any case, those schools should pay back the taxpayer funding that they've taken in the last few years. Uh, the Colmont College uh, should perhaps pay back um, the money that, that they received when they were trading insolvents. And uh, the, um, the Yeshiva College, well, we know what they should pay back. We've been given the figures. But uh, very interesting uh, reports indeed. Thank you, Sorrel. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you, Kim. We'll have a bit of a break about there now and we'll come back to talk about managerialism in schools. Well, you're still listening to the dogs, I hope. Um, that was our press release you've just heard and it will go up on our website at www.adogs.info. But Sorrel and Kim are going to read for us why managerialism can't solve everything in schools. The, um, the new right or the... Uh, the neoliberal uh, ideology that we've had to put up with since the 1980s, for some reason people believe that private is better than public and corporate is better than uh, people actually doing things themselves. And they have modelled um, running schools on ideas that big corporations that make profits uh, do. And it's not really working because children aren't really very good at producing profits, although apparently their parents are. But over to Sorrel and Kim. Thanks, Jean. 
So this uh, article is by Simon Lata Evans, and he writes that we can readily judge whether a vegetable ingredient for a soup is fit for consumption or not. Mold is a bit of a giveaway. And we can tweak the conveyor belt so the tins can be filled up more quickly without scalding anyone and thus produce more tinned soup in a week. Judging whether a soup is exceptional, though, is much more problematic. Against whose criteria is it exceptional? The homeless person who's not eaten a hot meal in days will have a different criteria than, say, the Michelin Guide or celebrity chefs. Yet, the application of this form of managerialism to what can only be subjective judgment with the idea that we can then measure it and improve it seems to be seeping into school life from well-being to equality, diversity and inclusion. Paying attention to the well-being of staff and students or asking what diversity and inclusion in education looks like is welcome, of course. But a managerialist approach to this seems to be at best an oversimplification of deeply complex topics and at worst, more management tyranny that leaves us at the mercy of additional benchmarking measures and impact evaluations. A live example is the proposed new inspection framework from the Independent Schools Inspectorate, which has committed itself to making well-being the primary focus through which it will judge independent schools. It looks like policy as dogma. One of its changes is the introduction of the concept of exceptionality, which as we've seen, is deeply flawed in any kind of measurement system. The ISI's new framework is the subject of consultation until Friday 16th September 2022. Why is this kind of managerialism problematic? The most obvious reason is that the things to be measured are about people living and working in contexts that are nuanced and specific to them. Schools have hundreds of people in them and claims that reliable judgments can be made about schools in the few days that the clipboard people spend in them are unrealistic. We are all bound to fail, servant and master, if the new framework goes through as it stands. Here's an example of the problem with making reliable judgments. On return from holiday, I ask a friend to rate their sense of well-being. Could they rank that on a scale of one to 10? Why that number? What number would you say you were before the holiday? Other than the holiday, what else has changed? Are there other things that are likely to change your ranking of well-being in the week ahead? How much of that is in your control? Can you say for certain that your measure of well-being is the same as the one your boss uses? How would you know? This conversation led to the revelation that at the firm my friend worked at, like many others, they have started using an online well-being survey to measure these things. What happens to the data? How reliable is the question bank? Who wrote the questions? And on what authority of knowledge? Yet despite all this, we are, as a school, signed up to run online wellbeing surveys for our staff, surveys that purport to also benchmark against other schools. Over to you, Kim, to tell us more about the data. Thanks, Sorrel. Um, the writer continues, 
I admit I am curious about the metrics and what, if anything, we can learn from them, not least whether our school is more or less miserable than the one next door. What it won't tell us is why. Perhaps it is no surprise that, even with my scepticism, we are signed up because in schools I do not understand the value of benchmarking when done right. For example, salary comparisons with other schools similar in kind and size to ours help to set accurate pay. Comparisons of teacher to pupil ratios tell us if we need more staff or less, and comparisons of room optimization help us to keep our estate in order. We could even cross-cut the data and see if we're spending proportionally more on one subject or another. This is all based on hard facts and empirical data. Move beyond this, though, and we're in immediate trouble. Some subjects cost more to teach, and some narrow interest subjects might be expensive to run relative to so-called core subjects. On whose value system are we to judge whether an expensive, narrow interest subject is worth the money or not? Do we throw that to the market and ask the parents to decide? What do the children think? On what basis are they making judgments? Children and young people can be poor decision makers with limited understanding of consequence. As a species, we are notoriously bad at making judgments around such things as effectiveness and performance in areas that are conceptual and abstract, like well-being or happiness. There are obvious examples where we can judge winners and losers, and there are things, there is substantive and valuable work around evaluation for such things as goal setting athletes in a race spring to mind, or whether a salesperson has met their target or not. Yet managerialism and the magic that it purports to wield is now so firmly lodged in our corporate thinking that we can no longer act with confidence without some form of evaluative judgment being made by someone else. We've, draw we've been drawn into the lie that we are essentially incompetent and cannot be trusted. Latterly, EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, Benchmarking tools have been springing up all over the place against which we can measure ourselves and inevitably discover that we are lacking in some important way. Toolkits by their nature tend to be leading and assumptive. Here's a question from a real EDI toolkit. Does teaching material include positive starting points to learn about people with protected characteristics avoiding casting them as victims? The general premise of the question seems at first to be okay, but pick it apart for a moment positive starting points? Why not just starting points? And the subclause avoiding casting them as victims is leading. As it stands, the question limits almost the entire canon of literature. Why stop there? As an English literature graduate, there are all kinds of other perspectives I might also benchmark our curriculum against. Marxist theory, queer theory, feminism, neoliberalism, postmodernism. Managerialism seeks to atomize people into units of measurement who are, if put on the right course, then told the right things to think, are given the right support, and are saved from themselves and others. As Hannah Arendt pointed out in her seminal text, The Origins of Totalitarian, Totalitarianism, the more equal conditions are, the less explanation there is for the differences that actually exist between people, and thus all the more unequal to individuals and groups become. A colleague recently described the challenges in the American schooling system because of what has become a protected category culture that is, they say, creating division, not inclusion. In my recent trip to Canada and talking to educationalists there, they too confirmed that the diversity drive is working against inclusion, which is not its intention. I am not arguing against the te central tenet of inclusivity, but there is a lot more thinking to be done, and managerialism is a poor model for change. What about 10 years of austerity and with it the death of social mobility? Instead, 
our attention is being redirected away from national policy decisions that led us here. The message to pupils is that meritocracy is alive and well, and if they feel down, it's a well-being problem that schools will now have a responsibility to fix. There will be a management tool to help you do that, or a, consult, a consultant you can book for the inset. Yet it was managerialism that made all this worse in the first place. High stakes exams, increased stress levels for students and parents, teachers fret about inspections, leaders worry about league tables, governors obsess about all of it. It is worth noting that fewer people, perhaps not surprisingly, are willing to become governors and recruitment into headships is proving tougher. The argument goes that we require wellbeing initiatives to fix these problems, rather than looking at the root causes and seeing if it perhaps those deeper social challenges driven by national policy that need attention instead. But what about another way? A straw poll in my echo chamber of Facebook reveals a different perspective governed by practical ideas and rooted in the rooted in the core business of education. Given the choice of investing in a wellbeing center or an art studio or similar, where would my friends spend the money? Art studio almost every time, or perhaps a library as someone else suggested. That's assuming though there was choice in the first place. And in the end, much of this often comes down to money. With the ISI's new focus on measuring and managing wellbeing, which bit of your teaching and learning budget will you slash to pay for it? Schools are now routinely investing in counselors and so-called wellbeing centers. Shouldn't we stop for a moment and ask why? Schools are at the mercy of widening inequality, diminished economic security and the climate crisis, which one might reasonably argue are the real sources of a great deal of unwellness. Giving people purpose, community and agency is a good thing and lies at the heart of good schools. And it doesn't need to be measured in such clumsy and limited ways, but that doesn't really fit in the model of managerialism that policymakers are so committed to. Back to you, Jean. Well, isn't that very interesting? It might be um, written from the point of view of uh, the um, private school system, but unfortunately, a lot of these ideas have come into the public school system too. Uh, managerialism, uh, trying to fit our children into NAPLAN and um, pizza, uh, shall we say, uh, games, really. They are games that, that the data collectors are playing and uh, one really wonders about it all. But um, I thought that our, our listeners would be interested in that because it's all part and parcel of the ideology that we have inherited from America and Great Britain, the Thatcher-Wagen ideology of the 1980s. And we don't seem to be able to shrug it off. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back uh, to some more interesting material. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Well, you're still listening to the DOGS program, I hope, and uh, we've got a very interesting article that was put up on the uh, Save Our Schools website. As you all know, Mr. Uh, Mr. Albanese is having all of these talk fests, but the one talk fest he's not responding to is the uh, tax cuts for the rich which are going to involve hundreds of billions of dollars over the next few years. And those dollars are what is required by public education and public health. So Maddie's going to read Stop Stage 3 Tax Cuts for the Rich. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, Save Our Schools today called on the Albanese government to ditch the Stage 3 Tax Cuts for the Rich. 
SOS national convener Trevor Cobold said the tax cuts are indefensible when public education and other services face a funding crisis. New economic studies show that the tax cuts will only serve to boost inequality without any economic benefit. The tax cuts will cost $243 billion over the next 10 years, according to the new estimates by the Parliamentary Budget Office, and over $150 million will go to the top 20% of income earners. This massive windfall for the richest people in Australis will exacerbate inequality and those most in need will be denied key services. At present, public schools are massively underfunded at only 87% of their schooling resource standard or SRS as we like to say, while private schools are funded at about 104 of their SRS. Under the current arrangement, public schools will be underfunded indefinitely. There is no plan to get public schools to 100% of their SRS. Public education will be underfunded by about $53 billion from 2022 to 2029. Other services such as aged care, the NDIS and healthcare face a similar funding crisis. Mr. Kobold said there is no evidence that tax cuts for the rich deliver any economic benefits. All they do is increase inequality as many recent authoritative economic studies have shown. He pointed to a recent study of all major reductions in taxes for the rich across 18 OECD countries from 1965 to 2015. And it found that they tax cuts, sorry, the tax cuts increased income equality and failed to increase economic growth or reduce unemployment. The study included the Reagan and Thatcher tax cuts and cuts to the top marginal rates in Australia in 1987. And it concluded, overall, our analysis finds strong evidence that cutting taxes on the rich increases income inequality but has no effect on growth or unemployment. Another recent study analysed the impact of reductions in tax rates on high income earners in Australia in 1987, New Zealand in 1989 and Norway in 1992. It found that the income share of the top percentile increased by between 20 and 50% in the three countries and the share of the top 0.1 percentile increased by between 50 and 100%. The tax reductions had no significant impact on economic output or other economic efficiency indicators. Mr. Kobold said this is compelling evidence to stop the stage three tax cuts. The studies comprehensively refute claims that tax cuts for the rich increase economic growth and employment. There are no trickle down economic benefits, only more inequality. The $243 billion over the next 10 years will be better spent to fund much needed human services, including public education. Investing in public education is a much better option than tax cuts for the rich. Increasing the proportion of disadvantaged students who complete year 12 or its equivalent and reducing the vast achievement gap between rich and poor will deliver in a much better public investment than tax cuts for the rich. Money matters in education. And apart from improve, improving the life chances of disadvantaged students and increasing equity in education, 
it would also boost productivity and economic growth, as many studies have shown. The government should ditch tax cuts for the rich and invest in human services such as public education for Australia's future prosperity. Well, that's that's a tremendous article. Thank you very much, Maddie. And uh, we'll have another break and we'll come back to some overseas news from Dale. We are still listening to the dogs program. Australia's not the only place where private schools do the wrong thing. Dale's going to tell us how the private schools over in England have been gaming the system. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. So I've got an article by Phil Beadle, an award-winning teacher from The Guardian, asking, what does the dramatic fall in GCSC grades tell us that private schools were gaming the system? Our school system favours the privately educated, so it's no surprise that the private sector inflated grades last year. State schools have rigorous moderation processes. In department workrooms across the countries, teachers check each other's grading. The number of top GCSE grades has fallen this year. For secondary school teachers, this was hardly a surprise. Many of us witnessed how last year's teacher-assessed grades were subject to a certain amount of moderating upwards. What's striking is where GCSE results have fallen furthest. In private schools, top grades have fallen from 61.2% to 53%, a fall of nearly four times the national average. Overall, the proportion of students getting top grades this year fell from 28.9% to 26.3%. Given that most private schools cherry-pick their students and have more resources than their state equivalents, why did they feel the need to inflate grades last year? Private schools have form here. It was arguably as a sop to the independent school sector that Michael Gove introduced the numerical system of grading, whereby students were awarded grades on a nine-point scale. Too many state school students were obtaining A-plus grades, so Gove introduced the new grade 9 to differentiate the top from the very top. The government seemed to have arrogantly assumed that a further and finer layer of sieving would ensure private school students still came out on top. Private schools have also constantly argued that GCSEs are not rigorous enough. Yet many of them put their students through international GCSEs, which still include coursework elements and are banned in the state sector. It's unsurprising that institutes that exist to provide unfair advantage to the already privileged will, when given the chance, behave in a manner that perpetuates this inequity. The results from last year's teacher-assessed grades were a clear illustration of this. Teacher-assessed grades were the only sane response to the pandemic and in the and to the inbuilt classism of the algorithm debacle. But there are issues with teachers awarding final grades, in particular because teachers' professional dis- discretion will err on the generous side. Between 2019 and 2021, top grades awarded by non-selective state schools went up a substantial 7.5%. Yet among private schools, inflation was almost twice as high, a massive 14.2%. Private schools clearly perceived the system's inbuilt capacity for gaming 
as an open invitation in a way that state schools did not. Why? First, many private schools are standalone institutions. State schools have rigorous moderation processes. In department workrooms across the country, teachers check each other, other's gradings. If it's too generous, we mark it down. Too harsh, we mark it up. Yet the independent sector seems to have a less rigorous grade moderation process than state schools. Perhaps it's also less fear fearful of regulatory authorities. After all, private schools do not fall under the remit of Ofsted and have their own rather less rigorous inspection regime. Private schools also faced increased levels of parental pressure. Most parents who send their children to private schools spend six-figure sums on fees and therefore expect their children to get top grades. This creates a pressure to deliver results, a factor that probably drove last year's bumper set of top grades within the sector. Our school system favours children whose parents have the capacity to pay to ensure their offspring achieve top grades whether through sending them to private school or subsidising their state education with an army of private tutors. In this system, it's no surprise that the independent sector, when given the opportunity to rampantly inflate grades, finds that it would be rude to pass up the opportunity. Education is the same as society at large. In a system that is unfair by design, those with the least integrity benefit the most. Back to you, Jean. Well, many thanks, Dale. We've found out something about England. Now we'll go to America. Thank you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got Diane Ravitch's blog from this week. Uh, the article is, Will the George Dawson School in Texas Ban the Biography of George Dawson? The George Dawson Middle, Middle School in the Carroll Independent School District in Texas is named for a man who was enslaved learned to read at the age of 98 and died at 103. The school board is now reviewing whether Dawson's biography should be read by students at the school. After all, its references to slavery and segregation might defy the state law against teaching critical race theory. When Dawson's book was published, it was hailed as an inspiring story. Its title, Life is So Good a book about the grandson of a slave who learned to read when he was 98 years old, is currently under review for use in the school named after him in Southlake. The book Life is So Good tells the story of George Dawson's life from, seg from segregation and the civil rights movement to learning to read at 98. It's one of about 10 under review by Carroll uh, Independent School District. Uh, Dawson gained worldwide attention for his 2000 memoir and was profiled on the Discovery Channel, Oprah, Nightline and in People magazine. A grandson of slaves, he became a face for literacy before his death in 2001 at the age of 103. The district insists that the book has, has not been banned yet. Others in the district say it has already been banned and the administrative discussion is a cover. Another article from the Diane Ravitch blog, Slate, the long history of forgiving debt. Republicans are outraged that Biden is forgiving the student loan debt of millions, millions of borrowers by the by $10,000 to $2,000. They have denounced loan forgiveness as socialism, a big government giveaway and worse. They are on the wrong side of history and politics. I can tell you that 
from the two years I worked in the US Department of Education that there's a student loan industry that has a powerful lobby. They want student debt to be as high as possible and they want the rates to be as high as possible. Biden's decision is very disappointing to their lobbyists. Zachary D. Carter writes in Slate that there's a long history of forgiving debt. This is a terrific article and I urge you to read it, says Diane Ravitch. Uh, Zachary begins in his article. In 1920, the world's most famous economist, John Maynard Keynes, was digging through old books on the economy of the ancient world when he discovered something startling. All his life, he'd been taught that civilization depended on ironclad financial certainty. Without a stable currency and dependable debt contracts, commerce could not exist. Government that meddled in such matters were thought to be asking for social chaos. But the documents he perused on ancient Greece, Rome, Babylon, Assyria and Persia showed him something else entirely. Throughout history, political leaders had abolished debts and managed the value of their currencies, another way to revise debts, as routine matters of government policy. Keynes was electrified. A year later, he had staked his reputation on a call to cancel the largest debts the world had ever seen, those accrued by the governments of Europe during World War I. If these debts were not cleared, Keynes had argued, the international trading system would break down, leading to misery and another war. Predictably, the financial establishments on two continents responded to this apparent heresy with alarm. Now Keynes had discovered precedent for his ideas. Thousands of years worth, from Hamamburai in ancient Babylon to Salon of Athens. As a side note, the Treaty of Versailles imposed massive debt on Germany. Had that debt been forgiven, there might have been no World War II. Indeed, debt relief has always been the handmaiden of debt itself. In the United States, we have a formal legal process for eliminating nearly all forms of debt, bankruptcy. When debts become unbearable, people file for bankruptcy to have them discharged in court. In the 15 years preceding the pandemic, more than 14.3 million people filed for bankruptcy. And in the decade prior to the pandemic, more than 20,000 businesses filed for bankruptcy every year, with a high watermark of 60,837 in 2009. Debts are discharged every day in the United States and have been for decades. Not that you would know that from the apocalyptic conservative outrage emanating from social media and cable television this week. When President Joe Biden announced his new student loan relief program on Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell decried it as socialism and Utah Senator Mitt Romney called it a naked attempt to bribe the voters. Reason Magazine's Robbie Sove declared it a fuck you to every financially responsible person in the country. These reactions belie centuries, if not millennia, of economic history. Capitalism would collapse without debt relief systems. Businesses get into trouble all the time, both good businesses that would work fine without a few onerous debt deals and bad businesses that need to be liquidated or restructured. Sometimes bad things just happen. People get divorced, they get injured and are overwhelmed by medical bills, they get laid off, they have to pay for a parent's funeral or care for children with special needs. And yeah, some people just don't know how to manage their money and buy things they can't afford. 
but we do not consign such people to never-ending financial servitude as a result of unforeseen circumstances or even totally reckless spending habits. We have a formal process to eliminate debts and start over with a reasonable chance of living a healthy financial life, but not for students who borrow money to attend college. In 2005, Congress passed a law that made it next to impossible to discharge almost any form of student debt. Even the most creative consumer lawyers estimate that only about $50 billion, less than 3% of the $1.75 trillion in outstanding student debt, had the potential to be wiped away, but only if students could persuade a court that they'd been egregiously wronged by, say, non-accredited programs or institutions that didn't actually offer degrees. Biden's new student debt relief program exists because student debt is currently ineligible for ordinary processes that Americans use for extinguishing excessive debts. This is Diane Ravitch's bit now. Uh, she says, nor are the recipients of Biden's aid particularly wealthy. The plan flatly excludes anyone who makes 125000 a year from participation. According to an analysis by the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Wharton budget model, about half the money will go to borrowers in the bottom half of the income spectrum, with only 2.5% of folks breaking into the top 10% receiving relief. The median personal income in the United States, the 50% line, is $35,800. This makes sense once we consider the actual demographics of the typical American college student, who is not an Ivy Leaguer bound for the 1%. About 40% of all undergraduate students attend, attend community colleges, about one third of whom take out student loans to help pay for their education. The average community college borrower graduates with more than $13,000 in debt. There is also racial disparities in student debt. According to a Brookings Institute analysis, black borrowers shoulder roughly double the amount of debt to attend colleges that white borrowers do. And another article Diane Ravitch has published is one by Carol Burris, The Charter Lobby's Deceptive and Self-Serving Poll. Carol Burris is a retired high school principal and executive director of the Network for Public Education. And she writes, it's been a bad year for the Charter School Industries Trade Association, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Their bitter campaign last spring to fight regulatory reform of the federal charter schools program used the slogan, back off, to intimidate the president and secretary Cardona. In the end, it was a ineffective in stopping the regulations. While they claim to achieve a few concessions, most of those related to issues that never existed in the first place. I estimate NAPCS spent upwards of $1 million on the campaign, which included television ads. As Republicans embrace school choice with the transparent motive of destroying community-governed public schools, Democrats have backed off but not in the way the NAPCS wanted. The latest poll by Ed Next, a pro-charter organisation, found that only 10% of Democrats strongly support charters. Over twice as many Dems strongly oppose them. And overall, support, even lukewarm support for charters, is only 38%. And so, in desperation, NAPCS 
recently published their report entitled Never Going Back, based on a poll that they conducted. Its transparent purpose is to convince Democrats that not giving full-throated support to charters will cost them re-election in November. Their poll data, however, is so profoundly flawed that it cannot be taken seriously. Frankly, it's an embarrassment for an organisation that used to serve as the go-to place for information about charter schools. Here's why. First, NAPCS does not give full access to its survey questions and the possible responses from which respondents could choose. We have no idea what the full array of survey questions was and what choices respondents had to pick from. This is critically important to, to allow the full expression of opinion. To illustrate, uh, that she provides a link to the full 2020 poll results presented by school choice advocacy organisation Ednext. While that survey has its own bias problems, it uses full Likert scale to allow respondents to provide a nuanced response. Did the NAPCS do the same? We don't know. But given the outlier results, which I'll discuss in greater detail later, it is doubtful. Secondly, they oversampled parents of, stu of students in charter schools. According to their report, 13% of respondents were charter school parents, but using their own figures from their 2021 report, voting with their feet, only 7.7% of all students in either a public or charter school were charter school students. And that percentage excludes the number of students in private or homeschool settings, which means the percentage of all charter school students is likely lower than 7% of all American K-12 students. Although the percentage of families with a child in a charter school may be higher or lower than the number of students, a six percentage point difference is not credible. Such inflation, however, would undoubtedly skew responses in a pro-charter way. It should be noted that during this past year, public school enrolment increased from last year, although it's still down from pre-pandemic levels. And as we showed in this report, charter enrolment in 21-22 is down. Thus, the oversampling is worse than I described above. Third, an examination of other polling data proves that the fix is in. Reliable polling results will differ by a few percentage points. For example, Ednext's recent poll reported that 52% of respondents give their community public schools a grade of A or B, while the recently released poll by PDK says that 54% give the top two grades a record high. Results are aligned. Dramatic differences in polls taken closely in time raise alarms regarding the poll's veracity. Now let's examine the NAPCS and Ednext's results on the question of school choice. NAPCS reports that between 58 and 65% of parents strongly agree that parents should have school choice. Ed Next asks a nearly identical question, do you support or oppose school choice? However, their percentage of parents who strongly agree is only 21%, a dramatic difference of about 40 percentage points. Much like the school choice question, the NAPCS questions regarding support for charter schools are wildly out of sync with the Ednext poll. According to Ednext, 51% of all parents somewhat or strongly support charter school. Yet NAPCS incredibly claims that 84% of parents, not including 
not interested in sending their own child to a charter school, support charter schools. And 77% of parents want more charter schools in their area. These results, in light of Ednex data, defy logic. Much like NAPCS's underreporting of charter schools run for profit, which we demonstrated in, the, in this report, NAPCS cherry-picks data to present charters in a favourable light. I guess one might even argue that as a trade organisation, they are doing their job. Even so, their latest report is beyond the pale and does not deserve the attention of either the press or the candidates this fall. It further damages the NAPCS's already tarnished brand. Back to you, Jean. Well, let's come back to Australia and let's be nice and positive. It's time at last for our great state school. Every week on the Docs Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Kerrang Technical High School. Congratulations, Kerrang Tech. And yes, as Jean said, you were a winner in the Age Schools of Excellence project. I'm going to read something from their school website now. Kerrang is strategically positioned on the highway network between Swan Hill, Echuca and Bendigo in the productive Northwest Irrigation area of Victoria. The town has a population of over 4,000 and the Kerrang Technical High School draws its students from the town and the wider district, which has a population of over 12,000. The main industries in the area are agriculture, dairy farming, engineering and horticulture. And so many of our students come from a farming background. The three nearest centres with larger populations are Swan Hill, Echuca and Bendigo, which meet the added needs for goods, services and entertainment. KTHS draws its students from seven primary schools, namely Kerrang Primary School, Kerrang South Primary School, St Joseph's Primary School, Kerrang Christian School, Coondrook Primary School, Murrabit Group School and Lake Charm. There is a strong network between the secondary school and the feeder schools, with combined professional development days and involvement in the year six to year seven transition program. Given the geographic spread of the catchment area, a significant number of students traveled by bus to school, which means that running after school programs is difficult. The school began as a higher elementary school in 1913 and was proclaimed as a high school in 1919. The technical component was added in 1973, from which time the school has been known as Kerrang Technical High School. The technical wing has been a strong feature of Kerrang and it caters for students in woodwork, automotive, engineering, welding and metalwork. The facilities, the enthusiastic tech staff and the pathway offered by the technical wing have ensured that it is an important component of the school and community. More recently, the school has undergone a refurbishment plan with new food technology and canteen being built and both their red brick building and the library being upgraded to better reflect the learning needs of the students at KTHS. KTHS sits in 19 hectares of sporting fields, lawns and gardens. The school also 
has used 6.2 hectares for its farm, and this is certainly an asset. The Cloud Oval is the main sporting area and athletics track has been constructed with the joint assistance of the Little Athletics Association. The school's facilities are available to the community. Thornley Hall is used extensively for community events as well as school occasions. The school has a teaching staff of 29, a quarter of whom work on a part-time basis. 17 school services officers and school council employees complement the teaching staff as administrative support. Librarian and library technician, science laboratory technician, wellbeing manager, youth worker, integration aides, canteen manager, and grounds and cleaning staff. KTHS has a strong welfare program overseen by their new wellbeing coordinator. A school nurse is shared by Swan Hill and KTHS and the school psychologist visits the school regularly. The psychologist is shared by KTHS and the primary schools in the district. KTHS has its own part-time youth worker to further extend the welfare program and is a part of the Doctors in Schools program. KTHS has a proud reputation of providing a rich co-curriculum program, which caters for the majority of students in the school. There is a high participation rate by students and the programs have been strongly supported by parents. Every effort is made to implement programs slash events which cater to individual needs. They have pathways to VET and VCAL, the Alpine School, middle school trips, year seven transition camp, year 10 work experience, great Victorian bike ride, and the Feathertop hike. Since 2007, KTHS has partnered with the Rotary Club of Kerrang to offer to offer an alternative to the end of year 12 schoolies week with a community aid program to Cambodia. A small core of parents is actively involved in the school. Parents are involved in the school council and nearly all of the subcommittees in the school. There is a very strong and active canteen committee which meets regularly and supports the key learning areas in the purchase of equipment. Parents are also called upon to provide transportation to functions where students are involved and this is always a positive contact between parents and the extracurricular programs offered. In my opinion, this is a community that really loves their school and it's so awesome to see. I am going to now shoot you some facts and figures from the Akara My School website. There is 255 students enrolled at this school. The ICSIA value is below average at 952. Um, in the upper 25% of parental income, there is 3% of the students. In the second quartile, there is 15%. In the third quartile, there is 31%. And in the lowest quartile, there is 51%. So really it's a school with many disadvantaged students with 2% speaking a language other than English and 8% indigenous students. To finances, the Australian government provides $1.168 million annually. The Victoria government, $4.468 million. Fees and parental contributions amount to $85,000 and other private contributions amount to $129,000. It costs per pupil $25,000 a year and capital, we have $1.126 million dollars over three years. The NAPLAN results are just fine 
and most of the senior students received a senior secondary certificate. The school offers a broad curriculum and VET courses were also well attended. 35% of the senior students went to university, 9% to TAFE and 32% to employment. So congratulations, Kareng Technical High School. You are our great state school of the week. Well, thank you, Maddie. And our time is gone. Our director, Dale, is telling us that our time is gone. So it's time to say from Dale and Maddie and Sol and Kim and Oliver, bye for now. And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to www.adogs.info. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.